0: Hello again, friends, and welcome to the video lecture for week three in our study of First Peter. I am hopeful that this lecture will continue to uh, uh, inform and uh, encourage your uh, engagement with First Peter in individual study or in collective study. This lecture will focus on 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. And in this passage, we see the author's continued emphasis on the character of the Christian community, focusing especially on their identity and their vocation. What I think is important to say at the beginning is that the author's discussion of this Christian community is really shaped and informed by a a reflection on Jesus, on Jesus' own character and disposition, on the narrative of Jesus and God's actions through Jesus. So, As I did with the week two lecture, what I'm going to do in this lecture is uh, a little bit of how did we get here? What is the literary context? Second, I will uh, approach the text. I'll provide a sort of overview of what we see in this passage as a whole. Third, I'll do a deeper dive into some of the themes and ideas found in our passage this week. And then I will close uh, with some questions for reflection. And, as a bonus, uh, a little suggested activity uh, for how you might engage this passage uh, in the week to come. So, to begin, how did we get here? How did we get to chapter 2, verses 2 through 10? Well, this is, really, the second main passage in the body of the letter, which started in one thirteen, And we studied, uh, we've talked about most of one thirteen through the end of chapter 1. And so, really, uh, this passage follows immediately on the material that we explored in our week 2 lecture. There's only one verse before our focus passage, and, um, and that is a verse that uh, does, is not included in the lectionary, two verses one. Um, it is a command for the community to rid itself, to, to eliminate, to get rid of all malice, guile, insincerity, envy, and slander. And I'm not going to belabor a discussion of this verse, but it's really important for us to recognize that these are all vices. They're vices that are well known in antiquity. And they are vices that I would say are all detrimental to the integrity and to the flourishing of a community. All of these, in other words, require a community To express them, right? It's really hard to be envious if you live on an island all by yourself. It's really hard to slander another individual if there's not another individual in your life or on your radar. And so, really, all of these vices are detrimental, they're counteractive. To the sort of community that the author is uh, is describing and encouraging the audience to uh, embody in their in their actions together and in their support for one another. The material that immediately follows our passage for this week, two eleven through three twelve, um, is again focused on the Christian community but is is going to put an emphasis more on uh, the nature of Christian behavior in the midst of a non-believing surrounding community, in the the midst of non-believing Gentiles. When we think about the structure or the movement of 1 Peter 2, 2 through 10, Uh, There are a couple of things, a a couple of major pieces on the map of the text that are worth highlighting. The first is that verse 2 really builds on the command that I just mentioned in verse 1. If verse 1 tells them to avoid community-destroying behaviors, verse 2 tells them to adopt principles of growth or community-building behaviors, um, verse two is uh, an imperative. It's a it's a it's an imperative that says long for this pure spiritual milk um, as a newborn baby. In verses four through eight, we have this uh, wonderful blending of uh, communal exhortation and reflection on Jesus and this idea of a stone, this image of a stone. Pulled from a variety of scriptural texts is really the controlling image for both the community and for Jesus. And then in verses 9 through 10, we return to a more explicit focus on the community and uh, particularly on their identity and their vocation. I mentioned it earlier, but one of the telling and important things about this passage is it is saturated with quotations and allusions to Israel's sacred scriptures, to the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament. We see Psalm 34, verses 8 being quoted in verse 3. We see Isaiah 28, 16 being quoted in verse 6. Psalm 118, 22 in verse 7. Isaiah again isaiah eight fourteen in verse eight, and then probably an allusion to both exodus nineteen six and isaiah forty three twenty through twenty one in verse nine, and then a quotation from hosea one nine and two twenty three in verse ten, so it is just filled, it's literally saturated with these Old Testament references. And as I mentioned at the beginning, there is this really interesting blending of what the author says about the community and then what the author says about Christ, sort of in the middle, and then in the in the end again what Christ says or what the author says about the community. It's almost like a little Christ sandwich, right? With the community as the bread on either side and, and reflection on Christ as the, the meat as the substance. And again, what, what this does rhetorically and theologically is it says that the narrative about Christ, the story about Christ, the significance of Christ is really the basis of the community's character, their identity, and their vocation. With that overview of our passage, I, I want to zoom in. I want to take a deeper dive on just a couple of ideas that I find to be interesting or, or significant for our reading of 1 Peter. The first is uh, this: what the author says about spiritual milk uh, and growing in salvation in verses 2 and 3. And the, the starting place is to recognize that this metaphor of being newborn babies um, is, uh, is related to that major theme in 1 Peter of baptism, that baptism, uh, that the, the ritual of baptism in the early church, one would would strip away one's clothing and, and be submerged in the water and by emerging from the water, one was talked about as being newly born, as, as being a new creation. And it's, I think, important um, for us to keep it as a metaphor and not a simile. If we, if we think about it as like newborn babies, we might, we might get the indication that, that the author is addressing recent converts or immature Christians. And the, the larger context suggests that that is not the case at all instead the the emphasis really is on this yearning this this desiring the Word of God um, having the sort of single mindedness of an infant that is yearning for the milk and it's milk alone that can nourish and satisfy it again if we if we you know just think openly and and, and, uh, and thoughtfully about uh, about infants right an infant doesn't want a cheeseburger an infant doesn't doesn't want sour patch kids an infant wants milk that's that's the only uh, thing in its palate it's the only thing that it's interested in and it's vital it's essential for its its growth for its livelihood. And I think that's the, the basic connection that our author is making. It is a, a constantly and in an unrelenting uh, nature of the desire that seems to be drawing out with this metaphor. Now, there is a bit of a translation difference in, uh, in this verse or in these verses. Uh, the NIV refers to pure spiritual milk. The NASB and the CEB, the Common English Bible, refer to the pure milk of the word. So, is it is it the word or is it spiritual? That seems to be the question, and it's related to the meaning or the sense of the Greek word logikos, which uh, comes from the word logos, which we know as word or a logic. Um, and the immediate context seems to suggest that it's it's really. Um, it's really the, the logikos there is, is probably more connected to the Word, specifically the Word of God, than it is to spiritual or rational, um, uh, which is another possibility. Um, because remember, earlier in 1 Peter, it is the Word of God that has proved decisive and important in re-begetting the Christian community. And so there's this yearning, the author says, it's a yearning that leads to growth in salvation. So just as a baby only turns to milk in order to grow up in stature, so too Christians are, are meant to desire and, and yearn for uh, the, the word of milk, the, the milky word, right, or the, the word that is like milk um, uh, in order to grow into their salvation. And again, this puts an emphasis on God's word. Yes, scripture, right? I I think that's fine. But maybe even more specifically, uh, this word is the the message or or the good news, the fundamental narrative about what God has done in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That sort sort of dwelling on that, longing for that, having our lives and our minds shaped by that narrative, is what it means to yearn for that milk. Uh, It is a a recognition that there is no other substance that helps us draw and and, and grow into our salvation. The second idea that I want to tease out in this section of the lecture concerns the stone and the stones in verses 4 through 8. And I, I will be more brief in this regard. I, I think the basic idea here is that there is this fundamental connection between Christ as God's elect and, uh, and the community as uh, elect and precious. And so just as there is a, a single stone uh, that is connected with Jesus and this single stone is elect and it's precious and it's honorable mm. and it's important, so too The community, the plural stones, are themselves elect and precious and important and set apart. Um, And the emphasis here is that uh, just as Jesus is elect, so the community has been elected by God to become this special people of God. And so throughout these verses, the, the interweaving of these quotations about the stone or stones Really, the emphasis is on election. It's, it's on God's choice of Christ and on God's choice of the community. And uh, this election, as we'll see in, in just a few moments, uh, it undergirds and, and is the foundation, the basis of the community's vocation and their identity. It is the community's identity and their vocation that I want to discuss a bit more further as we see them both discussed in verses 5 and then again in verse 9. And so in verse 5, we get this image of the early community, the Christian community, as a spiritual house. Um, It's a, it's a, a, a spiritual dwelling pit place and the importance of this is the corporate nature right a house isn't one stone it's not one brick but rather it is the building up of the community to serve this priestly function to um, play as a body of priests this this offering of acceptable sacrifices and so this idea of a corporate priesthood is is really important it is uh Important for us to remember that it is not an individual priest, but it's the, the community together that shares in this common priestly vocation. It's uh, indicative of, a, of the life and the devotion of the community being completely and utterly uh, uh, oriented towards God. Or you might remember that the basic job description of a priest is to represent God to the world and to represent the world to God. And so the author of 1 Peter is saying that's what the community, that's what the whole community constituted together is meant to do, is to represent God to the world and represent the world to God. And they do so through the offering of these spiritual sacrifices. There are There are other ideas in the Old Testament, as well as in the writings known as the Dead Sea Scrolls found uh, by Qumran, these writings of this early Jewish sect, um, as as well as similar ideas elsewhere in the New Testament that contrasts spiritual sacrifices from the literal sacrificing of animals or of other um, items. And here, there's a variety of what this might entail, and the author doesn't give us a, a laundry list, but I think we can say a little bit about what these spiritual sacrifices might include. The first is, the context of verse 9 suggests that part of the spiritual sacrifice is the witnessing, is, is telling the world, showing the world, declaring to the world the sorts of things that God has done, the, the ways in which God interacts with the earth and with humanity. I think a, another one is, is prayer and praise. I think these are also forms of spiritual sacrifices. Again, I'm, I'm drawing, I think, on other references in the New Testament, especially the book of Hebrews, but I think that those are valid. So um, the spiritual sacrifices are our response, we might say, to the, to the grace and the mercy that God has shown to us through Jesus Christ Christ. So that's one half of the identity and vocation that we see in this passage. The other half is in verse 9. Um, and here we've got language drawn from Exodus 19.6 in Isaiah. Um, and uh, each one of these uh, adjectives or, or, or modifiers is worth our attention. First, uh, the idea of an elect race res- uh, resumes the theme of Christians as an elect people. And here, race means that they have a common origin; they have a common birth, right? That's that's what race meant in. Uh, th- that's what the word genos means here. Um, that there's a, a a common birth, a common point of origin for the people of God. The second is a royal priesthood. Again, this is drawn from Exodus 19:6, and it is in in Reformed tradition. It's what provides the basis for the priesthood of all. Believers, but it's a it's a the royalty of it is is probably a priesthood devoted to God the King, to God the Lord. The third is that they are a holy nation; that they are a holy nation indicates that they are a group who shares common customs. Again, uh, the, the idea of nation isn't necessarily a, a border, a, you know, ab- about borders and statehood as much as it is customs and ways of life. Um, and so they, they share in these common customs. And in all of these, these all emphasize Christian unity, despite the different ethnic backgrounds of the community, Jews and Gentiles um, and, and people from all over ancient, uh, ancient uh, Asia Minor are, are brought together and they're united by uh, this common origin by this common vocation as priests, and by these common customs because they're all a holy, set-apart nation. And we see at the end of verse 9 this vocation that I mentioned earlier, that uh, they are, they are, all of these things are happening to them in order that they would tell of God's wondrous deeds, that they would retell the basic gospel, the basic narrative about how God has acted redemptively in and through the life and death of Jesus Christ. The final thing I want to highlight in this passage is uh, the idea of belief that we see in verse 6. And I I want to start by saying that in the NIV we see the word trust, and in the NASB and the CEB we see the word believe in. And I think either of these are possible as long as we know that the belief that is indicated here in verse 6 is more than propositional knowledge, it's more than, you know, you can check the box of certain beliefs. It is um, much more um, uh, personal and, and powerful. It is uh, the sense of, of putting one's trust in something. Uh, we might think of it as a wager, of betting one's life. So that when the text talks about those who believe in this, this stone that was rejected will not be put to shame. That this belief in Jesus, in the context of 1 Peter 2, um, is a a deep-seated trust. It's it's throwing our lot in with Christ. Um, And it, it is, again, it's those who have put their trust, those who have bet their lives on the basic narrative about God and God's actions, about God's character and about God's ways um, it is these people, those who have that sort of faith, that sort of trust, that sort of belief um, that are being constituted and called in the ways that I've just mentioned in verses 5 and 9. Another way that we could think about this word belief here is is also through the lens of faithfulness or, or being faithful. Um, and so, uh, those who are faithful to the way of Jesus, those who align themselves and, and are modeled uh, or model their lives after the way of Jesus, those ones will not be put to shame. And the final thing to note about this this radical trust that that we see in verse six um, has to do with this language of shame. And here again, we have this contrast between uh, the the apparent or the lived experience, and the anticipation or hope. Because probably for the first readers or hearers of First Peter, they're putting their trust, they're, they're betting their lives on Jesus did in fact result in shame. It, it resulted in a loss of social standing. It resulted in social ostracism and maybe physical abuse. Um, and so their lived experience is shameful by a, by a number of ways. But the author is saying they will not be be fully put to shame or, or in the end or at the at in the ultimately they will not be shamed because of this uh, betting their lives on Jesus. In fact, they'll be uh, the opposite, they'll be glorified, they'll be rewarded. Uh, seems to be the logic that we see here. As I did with our week two lecture, let me close with just a couple of questions for you to consider, consider individually or consider in a group uh, together. The first is, um, how might God be calling you individually to grow into salvation? And how might God be calling your community to grow into salvation collectively? Is there a big difference between individual growth into salvation, and communal or collective growth into salvation. The second question is, what about the author's words about the identity and the vocation of the community in verses 5 and 9 really resonates with you, sticks with you? What surprises or maybe even confuses you? Third, how does this passage help you think about how Christians should engage non-Christians. What does this say about our engagement with people who are outside of our immediate religious community? As I said at the beginning, one little activity for you to consider this week and it has to do with these images of stone and 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 stones as we mentioned earlier so i encourage you to find a stone um or out out in your yard or or maybe go out on a walk and look and look for a stone It, it should be about the the size of your hand or the palm of your hand maybe smaller um, and maybe there's a rock or a stone that appeals to you, and, and I invite you to, to carry that stone with you in the upcoming week, to put it in your pocket, put it in your backpack, put it somewhere where it will be a physical reminder of this passage. And as you feel that stone in your pocket or in your bag, think about Christ as the cornerstone, or, uh, and or uh, think about the church uh, as a collection of living stones. And so let this stone that you carry around around with you be a reminder of who you are and what you're called to be, but also a a reminder of that fundamental basic narrative about God's activity in and through the person of Jesus. Thank you, friends, for your attention to this week three lecture. I uh, hope that it is an edifying lecture. I I love and and look forward to hearing about your engagement with 1 Peter and uh, am always grateful for your time and your attention. Have a great week.